So today is the second week of Advent, the second Sunday of Advent. Uh, I will tell you, Advent and Christmas are not the same thing. The Advent season is the season, it's actually in the, the church liturgical calendar, uh, which n- not, not all of us have a lot of familiarity with, uh, might be kind of a new thing to you, uh, but Advent is the beginning of the church calendar. It's kind of where we start, uh, and Advent is not Christmas. Christmas is the celebration. Christmas is when we finally get to that point, we celebrate that Jesus has come and the incarnation, and there's so many great aspects of that. Advent is the waiting period that precedes Christmas. And uh, in Advent, that means that there's this mixture within us of expectation, but also sometimes of grief. It's an acknowledging that the world is not the way that it ought to be. It's acknowledging the things around us uh, that we struggle with, that, that there are problems that we deal with, and that we need to grieve those. And the part of the expectation is saying, while the world is not what it ought to be now, we are expecting that God is about to work. That's a powerful message, isn't it? When we can acknowledge that not all is well, not everything is perfect. We can certainly point to all sorts of things in the world that we would struggle with uh, that hurt us, that hurt other people, uh, great injustices and pain that still remain in the earth. And yet we look forward as we look back, kind of a little bit of both, that Jesus has come and Jesus is returning and that we are part of heralding in that new world. And so in Advent, we sort of have both of those things going on. The world has gone wrong. It's not as it ought to be, but God is about to act. And at Christmas, we see that God has acted, of course, and and Jesus has come and the kingdom is now available. And yet it is not completely realized. And so we also wait. And both of those things, uh, we hold in tension. So today, uh, the second week of Advent, we're talking about love. I don't know if I should tell you this, but love is not the easiest topic to, to, to preach about. Because, I think, partially, because it's, it's like everything, right? Love is the biggest thing and it's everything, but we talk about it so much that it becomes very cliche in what we're talking about. It becomes almost generic. It's, it's hard to talk about love because it's just love, love, love. All we do is talk about love, one of those things you say it so often that it can lose its meaning and it can actually be hard um, to, to, to recapture that. One time I met a lady for the very first time and she asked me what I did for a living and I said, I'm a pastor. And she said, oh, you're a pastor. I don't know what your church is like, but I just changed churches. I said, oh, that's interesting. Why did you change church? She said, well, I felt like I really needed to learn something. I really needed to get into something. My old church, it was just love, love, love every week. Love, 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 more love. I was like, yeah, love is the worst. That's terrible. You know, leave that church. But I got it, right? It's the thing that we just talk about so much that it can also lose its, often almost lose its meaning. We don't even know what we're talking about anymore. But here's what I'm talking about today when I talk about love and, and what it really means. Is that there are many people who have deconstructed their faith, who have walked away from faith. There are many people who have left church, who have left faith, Christianity, or maybe faith in general, And part of the problem, I think, and there's all kinds of stuff that we could get into. Everybody's different. Everybody has their reasons. But I think one of the problems is that faith has become very disconnected with a lot of people's lives. They just look around and say, this doesn't connect. That this is just too superficial. The religion is too superficial. The answers that we give about our faith are just too superficial. That when I walk out into the world... And when I go to my everyday activities, whatever that is, with my family, at my job, there's, just, there's not enough there. It's not deep enough 
to sustain what my real life is look, what looks like, what the, what the real world is like. I need a faith that, that goes deeper, that actually attaches to the things I'm dealing with, that doesn't just skim, oh, you've got a problem, here's an easy answer, oh, here's a quick Bible verse, oh, here's, here's just run through the motions of church, but that there's got to be something more substantial. And I think as a, a church community, that that is upon us, whether you're someone who's been here forever and ever and ever, your entire lives, or whether you're somebody who maybe just investigating Christianity, I think one of the things we want to do is to stop and say, how does our faith actually meet our reality? That's something that I've learned recently. I was reading the book of 1 John, which is a small little book of the Bible right towards the end of the Bible, and I read it and noticed that there's two major themes that popped out to me as I read through it. It doesn't take long. It's only a handful of chapters. You can read it in a few minutes. And so I read through it a couple of times, and I realized there was two really main topics. One of them was love and that's consistent. You read the, the letters of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and the Gospel of John. That's a really consistent thing. The love of God, what that looks like, how we receive it, how we live it out. And the other theme that came up to me that I kept reading in 1st John was about lies. And over and over, he has these verses that are about, well, if you do this, you make God out to be a liar. Or if you say this, you're a liar. Or this, this, this is a lie. And I thought, wow, there's such a connection between love and lies. And here's what I concluded as I read through uh, that short little book a number of times. Love does not lie. Love does not lie. Love is rooted in reality, in what is true, or just what is. What is? And a huge part of our faith, I think, is becoming connected once again to what really is, to what reality is, what is True, not just what is true in our opinions. And a lot of times I, I wrestle with this because as Christians, we talk so much about the truth. And sometimes we have this arrogance that we have the truth and we talk about, I have the truth and we have the truth because we've read the Bible or something like that. And then we start talking about our opinions on certain topics and stuff like that. And that's all important. And I hope that our opinions, if you're a Christian, I hope your opinion is based on scripture and good study and conversation in, in community and all that kind of stuff. But what I'm talking about when I talk about truth and love is what, what's real, what's actually reality. Because I think God, we could argue all about what we think God is like. The end of the day, whatever we think, whatever I think, whatever you think, God is. God is. The amazing thing about Advent, and then as we come to Christmas, is the contention of the Christian faith is that God has revealed himself to us ultimately in a person, in the person of Jesus. The person who Christian theology has claimed is fully divine and fully human. Shows us what it is to live as a human being fully and completely in reality, connected with capital R reality, God, who in 1 John is called love. Love, reality, what's real. When you, when you strip away all the stuff in life that's a little bit fake and a little bit pretentious and a little bit put on, and a little bit spun, and you just chipped it all away to what's, what's really real at the end of the day that matters. We find love himself. This is the contention. And to know what that looks like is we investigate the person of Jesus. And so God, uh, I believe, uh, inspired the writing of the scriptures, this book, which is amazing, because in it, we are led to see Jesus. It was the word of God. 
made flesh. The one we are expecting to work in our world, in our lives. So I want to dive in today to a number of verses, and instead of um, just one chunk of, of Scripture, as we might normally do, uh, I want to look at some of those verses in 1 John that I looked at uh, that are relating love and lies. And today to be reminded that love does not lie. And our call, I believe, is to get down at the bottom of everything to reality, where we find love. Love himself. God himself. The occasion or the reason for this uh, short book to be written in 1 John is that there was a group of Christians, uh, early Christians, not long after the death and resurrection of Jesus, and some had uh, sort of drawn themselves out of the community, the church community, and formed another little group, it seems, from reading this. And by the way, we read some of the the letters and, and different books of the New Testament especially, and oftentimes we're just getting one end of a conversation. So these were all written to a community, probably because whoever wrote it either got some kind of correspondence or they visited and they found something out, they looked at the problems, the things that they were struggling with, and then they wrote a letter. But we, we don't have the other side of the conversation. So we're always doing a little bit of investigative work to find out what's the exact reason, as best as we can tell, why this was written and and why um, they needed to hear these things. And our our best guess is that there was a group of people uh, in this community that had drawn kind of themselves off to the side. And in doing so, it showed a lack of love to their Christian community. They are called, some not so nice terms in this book, Antichrist. Or deceivers, people who are lying, people who are tearing people away from, again, the core of what is love. And so in response, we get this book that tells us, hey, here's here's what it should look like. Here's what it could look like. So 1 John 1 verse 10, it says this. And I want to investigate three lies today. Three lies that uh, we tell with our lives in connection with love. Number one, it says in 1 John 1 10, if we say we have not sinned, We make him, God, out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Here's lie number one, when we pretend to be perfect. I want you to notice something about that that verse and who it's addressed to, who it's talking about. Remember, this is a letter to a church community. So uh, theoretically, people who have declared that Jesus is their Lord and their Savior and that he's their entire life, and that's how they're going to order how they live. Now he says, here's what's really important. If we say... We have not sinned. We make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Here's one of the things that um, I find as a constant annoyance. And as I say this, um, I'm going to just I'm going to put my bias out there. Um, I am often I often find myself being harder on Christian people who are part of the church than those who are not. And I do that I think partially because that's where I'm at, and so uh, I feel like I can be critical about all of you. No, I'm just kidding. I can be critical about myself and about those of us who have made certain commitments. And some of you who are watching this or you're here today, you haven't made those commitments. And we we read in other parts of the scripture, uh, there are writers who say, who am I to judge people who are outside? If you haven't agreed to follow Jesus, um, then who am I to judge you? Because you haven't made these commitments. It's okay for you to be investigating and checking things out. For some of us who have made these commitments, we say, this is what I believe and I'm trying to follow Jesus. This is a powerful word. If we say we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar. If we come to the point where we pretend that we're better than other people, we have it all together, we figured it out, our lives have become everything that they should to be, we've, we've totally missed it. We make God out to be a liar. 
You know, I think this is one of the things that has repulsed many people away from the church and away from faith is that we talk so much about sin, but there's so many of us who are a part of the church and our, uh, we think it's our job or we act like it's our job to look at everybody else and tell them how they're destroying the world and making everything bad and you're all sinners and you're all terrible people. And I know what's the problem with our society. It's those people and it's that guy and it's the people who say that and do that and don't believe these things. And we've got this kind of judgmental outlook on everybody else is a sinner. And here we are, the Christians who have it right. We believe the right things and we say the right things and we do the right things. And if we say that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. If we lose the plot that we are sinful people, saved by grace, loved by a God who loved us before we loved him, and that it's all about the fact that he's loved us and he's graciously forgiven us and continues to forgive us and continue to give us what we don't deserve. If we lose that, we lose reality. We lose the truth. I think somewhere along the way, you know, we come, we come maybe early in faith and, and perhaps uh, we come uh, very convicted about the things in our lives that have to change. Maybe in the beginning we do change a lot and, and we see all this growth in our lives. But somewhere along the way, I think there's this temptation for us to sort of be comfortable in our faith. And as long as we sort of look like the other people who are in church and as long as we've dealt with the certain sins that are sort of in our past and we're not struggling with those ones anymore, there's this, this tendency for us to sort of coast and think everything's good with me, there's some people out there doing some bad things in the world. But if we say that we have not sinned, we make them out to be a liar. How do we avoid admitting that we have sinned? What are some of our tactics? It's not always conscious, but what are they? They're things like scapegoating, blame shifting, denial, putting on appearance, self-pity, a good one. I'm sorry because it's cost me something. Oh, I am the victim of even my, my own problems. Or uh, as Tim Keller says, self-flagellation, which he, he says means I will feel so terrible that no one else will be able to criticize me. Right? I just put myself down so far that nobody else can say anything about my life. But here's, here's something that I think is true. Humility is the antidote to hypocrisy. And we would do well, I think, to be careful never to lose that humility. To say we're always in process. We're, we're still working. Not to beat ourselves down so much that, that, that we live in guilt. That's not the point here. To make ourselves victims that, that can never grow. But to say, hey, I'm in process. I've sinned. I continue to sin. God's still working on me. There's areas of growth. Yeah, I read the Bible, but I don't have... I don't have the corner on every true opinion. I don't know everything. I can learn from other people. Humility does so much to us. When we come and, and you know, we can invite everybody and say, man, we all start at the same place and hopefully we grow. That's, that's, you know, that's a big part of it. It's not that, oh, I'm a sinner and nothing can ever change in my life. It's, this humility is actually the ground for our growth. It helps us to grow. And so we start with that number one reality and we fight that lie that we need to pretend to be perfect. We got to be careful how we treat each other as well, don't we? That we don't create a community where we expect everybody else is perfect, which really means we're all just pretending, right? Ah, uh, we're all good here. We're all good here. Well, that, that wouldn't be reality. That would be uh, just us making up uh, errors. And uh, that's not going to fly. That's just not going to fly. It's not going to fly for our souls. It doesn't change anything. And if we're honest, there's nobody around us that wants that kind of faith, Second one, 
First John chapter 2, verse 4 says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So lie number two is when we emphasize knowing about God over knowing God. Whoever says, I, I know him, there's intimacy, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. I wonder sometimes if the way that, the way that we know God, uh, if we sort of, if we pushed on that a little bit and described it and said, okay, you say you know God, well, how do you know God? And you said, well, I read about him, and uh, I got this list of things I think he's like, and what he likes and what he doesn't like. And uh, because I've read about him, and I go to church, and I re- hear these sermons, and we sing these songs, um, I sing him love songs, that's another thing, that's good. And, uh, and then I know how he works, because I've read it in the Bible, so I, you know, I kind of know what his routine is like, and, and how he gets, you know, what he does in a day, and, and those sort of things. I sort of wonder sometimes if the way that we know God, we're just stalkers. Which is, we know about God while pretending that we have a relationship that we don't really have. This, to know God in this language, is very relational. It is, I have a relational, experiential knowledge of God. Well, says this writer, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. You don't really know him. You, know, you might know about him. You might sing love songs on his, on his front lawn. You might write him letters from, from a distance. You might have a list of characteristics, as I said, about what you think God is like. But if you don't live out what he says, if you don't obey, if you don't follow through on how God has called you to live, then that's not really reality either. Some of us think that obedience and legalism is the same thing. Well, if you just tell me to obey God, well, that's legalism. It's not legalism. Uh, Of course, I think if we press that a little bit, we would understand that. We would realize that. Uh, Legalism is when we think that we can earn God's love. If I do this, then God will love me and I will earn that. That's legalism. Here's the law that I follow. And if I follow that law, then God will love me or accept me or forgive me or whatever it is uh, that we might say. Uh, But uh, earning is different than effort, right? Now, you know this if you have any kind of deep relationship with anybody. Certainly if you're married. We can follow some of the same principles. If your husband or your wife, your spouse, said that you you said, I know you, but you don't show them any love, what's going to happen to your relationship, to your marriage? I know all the things you like. I just don't say them. I don't do them. I don't follow through. One of the vows, I actually like this, are becoming very popular as people share their vows, uh, is something to the effect of, I want to promise uh, to support you in your hopes and your dreams and the things that you want to do in life. We're going to live this out. Well, you could know your spouse's hopes and dreams and everything they want in life, but if you don't live in such a way that helps them to actually realize those hopes and dreams, if you're not actually being supportive, if you're not putting your money where your mouth is, then one day you're going to wake up and say, you might know a lot about me, but I don't feel like... We know each other anymore. I don't feel like we're close. I don't, think, I don't feel like you love me. Well, I know what you love, though. I know that you would love it if I whisked you away for a weekend away. Buy you some presents. Share some words of affirmation. Do some chores around the house. And you would say, that's great. You know a lot about me. Now go do some of those things. And as we do those things to each other, we are going to be expressing our love. And we are going to be learning intimacy together. 
1 John 2.22, a little bit later in the chapter, says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is Christ? This is the Antichrist, just someone who's against Christ, going in the opposite direction. He who denies the Father and the Son. The earliest profession of faith for the Christians, among all the things that Christians profess, was that Jesus was Lord. Here, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's the one that God has come to work through to save us. He is the one that leads us, that we look to and that we follow. And so if we love him, part of loving him is obeying him. Love has come to show us what love has looked like and to invite us to love. And so if we want to experience that, and if we want to know God in an experiential, deep sense, if we want to be tuned into what his spirit is doing, part of that is obeying him, to living the way that Jesus lived. Remember, we talked about Jesus is the, the holistic human. This is what it looks like to be fully human, to be fully immersed in the things of God. Fully dependent on the Holy Spirit. Fully devoted to what God is doing in the world. So I read this quote from Shane Claiborne this week. He's a, he's a Christian activist in the States and author. And he said this, talking about Christians and how we would know if we are one. He said, when someone asks us if we are Christians, I think the best answer is to tell them to ask the poor, the incarcerated, the immigrants and refugees, the widows and the orphans, the least of these, they will tell you who the Christians are. Here's why he said that. Because there's a lot of things that Jesus taught us, right? Uh, Jesus taught us about our money. He taught us about uh, sex. Uh, he taught us about devotion. He taught us about temptation. He taught about integrity. He taught about all kinds of different things. But when Jesus talks about the judgment day, look at Matthew chapter 25. This is where Shane Claiborne gets this quote. He says, when, when you know, there's this judgment day and we're sitting down and the judge, Jesus, is, is separating it out and saying, who are my followers? He said this, he calls some people to them and they said, oh, we didn't even know. We didn't know we'd be on this side. We didn't know we, we were your followers. What, like, what's going on? He said, well, because when I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the people will come and they will say, well, when did we see you hungry and thirsty and a stranger and naked in prison and all those things? And he answers, truly, I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, you did it to me. And then he goes on and does the opposite and says, when you saw those people who were hungry and thirsty and naked and incarcerated as a stranger, and you didn't do it to them, you didn't do it to me. In other words, if you want to know me, you will find me in those who are most vulnerable and in need. It's a commandment of Jesus. Feed the hungry. Give a drink to those who are thirsty. Visit those who are in prison. Take care of the orphans and the widows, people who are vulnerable. Visit people in prison, right? These are the commands. And so Shane Claiborne makes a good point. We want to know who Christians are. Why don't we ask those people? And if we want to really know God, where do you think we should find him? Well, again, Jesus teaches a lot of us commands that we should follow. But it's pretty clear that he says, if you really want to know me, you'll know me when you look in the eyes of someone who's in need. And when you do something for them, you'll be doing it for me. It's uh, sacramental which means uh, in those people who are in need, we find the presence of God. That's so very powerful. So if we looked around in our city of Hamilton and we asked the people who are most in need here who the Christians are, who would they say they are based on the criteria of our Lord, the Christ Jesus? Incredibly challenging, but love doesn't lie. Reality, what's the truth? Third lie, 1 John chapter 4, 
verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Lie number three, when we think that we can love God without loving others. Or another way to put it, you can't have an invisible love for God without a visible love for people. You can't do it. I know it's easier. It is, isn't it? I mean, this is one of the great temptations of pretty much any religion. Well, I, I, I do my religious stuff. I go, I sing my love songs to God. Oh, maybe I have a nice little religious feeling. It makes me feel good. That's wonderful. I've got some other practices. I've got some ideas about God, and I can't, I can't actually see him, but I know he's out there. Sort of intangible religious experience. All right, all those things, by the way, probably good things. But then we walk out into the world and we go, well, how do we know any of that love from God, that invisible stuff, is actually real? Not a lie, not a pretense, not just a, a flaky feeling, but something that's actually real. No lies, no making stuff up, no pretending. Well, you will love your brother because you either love or you don't love. If you receive love, you give love. You live in love or you don't live in love. But when it really takes you over, it takes your entire life over. And so uh, if you love the invisible God, you will have a visible love for other people. Otherwise, it's really not love. A powerful thing. And Jesus taught about this all the time. He taught about how we judge other people instead of loving other people. He taught about, man, if you're going to the temple and you're going to sacrifice, you're going to go through all that, that ritual to love, to worship the invisible God, which is good and a beautiful, wonderful thing. But then all of a sudden you realize that there's something between you and somebody else. He says, leave your sacrifice there and go make it right. Go reconcile. Because that's what love does. We don't go through all these rituals and do all this invisible stuff for it not to meet our reality. Love does not lie. The love of God poured into us pours out of us. So Jesus reminds us, listen, all this other stuff, it's just, it's not going to be reality unless it's lived out in love with other people. You can't, he doesn't let us off the hook. It'd be so easy if he just let us off the hook, isn't it? We'll just come to church every week and sing the songs and listen to the words and do the prayers. All the invisible stuff. But Jesus doesn't let, off, let us off the hook. He doesn't let us lie with our love. So then what is, what is love? In English, uh, and maybe you've heard this before, in English, uh, love is like a catch-all term. We say love for things that we quote-unquote love that are so drastically different because we don't have the language necessarily to break it up and differentiate it, but to the point where, again, sometimes it loses our meaning. So we can say things like, I love Christmas time. I love cheesecake. I love my friends. I love my wife. I love God. And we've said it all the same thing, but I don't love all those things in the same way. I don't know about you. In fact, they're very, very different. Now, in the biblical language, uh, in, in Greek, when this was written, there was a number of different Greek words for love that we all translate into English usually just love because we don't, we don't have an easy way of differentiating those things. But it's actually important as we read through scripture and as we think about love to probably uh, think through that and to differentiate what we're talking about and what we're talking about here in 1 John, what kind of love we are talking about and what kind of love we're not talking about. So here's real quickly the four different kinds. Number one is storge, which means affection or a familial love, mostly between parents and kids. That's the most common way of talking about this kind of love. So how a mom or dad loves their children is the most clear version of a storge love, an affection that comes inside the family. We have philia, which is friendship. 
And so you love your kids, but you love your friends and you love them in different ways. It's not quite the same kind of love. You don't have the same kind of expression of it. Um, it you know, it's, it's still in the same realm, but those are different. Your family love, familial love, and then your friendship love. And then there's eros from where we get words like uh, erotic, eroticism, and that's romance. And so this is the kind of love uh, between two people, uh, romantic, and, and there's a sexual component, although it's not just sexual, uh, but it's in, in that field. Again, we're not we're not in a completely different sphere, but these are all differently. And then we come to the kind of love that is all throughout the book of 1 John and other places in scripture, the kind of love that comes from God, and it is agape love. It is pure, willful, unconditional, sacrificial love that intentionally desires another highest good. So when you say, I love pizza, we're not talking about agape. I don't know if that makes the list, actually, but I do love pizza. So when we come to 1 John, we're talking about agape. We're realizing that God loves us with this pure, willful, unconditional, sacrificial love who desires the best for us. And so we come to Advent, a time leading up to Christmas, when we celebrate what we call the incarnation, the word of God becoming flesh, invisible God taking on flesh and dwelling amongst us, showing us what it looks like to love us, And I love, as I said before, he didn't just give us a book, as much as I love the Bible, but he came as a person. What on earth would it look like for God to love us? And the Christian theological answer is we see it most clearly in the person of Jesus, who would step right to where we are and to give him his entire self for us, for what's best for us. No pretenses, no pretending, no religious platitudes, but authentic, self-giving love. God would step into our world to live as one of us, to show us what it looks like to be wholly divine by showing us what it looks like to be wholly human. It's spectacular. It's such a beautiful thing we celebrate in the incarnation. So in 1 John 4, it says, verse 7, Beloved. By the way, this comes from the same word, agape, that we read over and over here. Love, 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 love. We start with this. Who are you? Who am I? Who are we? Who have we been created to be? You are beloved. You are God's beloved. You are the agape That's not good grammar. I just made that up. But you know what I mean. We're the agape We're the ones that, that God has sacrificed for. He wants the best for us. Real no lies, no pretending. I will step into your world, be like one of you, and give myself up for you, love. Beloved, beloved, if that's you, if you recognize today that's you, I hope you will. Wherever you're at, whoever you are, I hope you, you just have to accept this. This is, that's, that's our role. Beloved. Same word. Let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. What is love? Reality, no, no pretending, no lying. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. 
In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, today, uh, I just ask that you would open us up to uh, seeing freshly how significant it is that you would send your son into this world to show us that you are love. We want to thank you. We want to praise you. Thank you that you truly want what is best for us in a holistic sense. Pray, God, that you would free us today from some of the lies that we live out, lies that we feel like we have to pretend to be something that we're not or be somewhere that we're not, lies that tell us, um, perhaps lies that tell us that, that we don't need to respond in love. God, help us to live in the reality, your reality, the reality of love, the reality that we are your beloved, that we're loved. And the reality of what that asks from us in order to love the world around us. I pray that Westside Church, whether we're in the room, whether we're watching online, would be a community of people for whom love, you, is absolutely central to our lives. I pray that on an ongoing basis, because of that love, that people in our city would come to recognize your love through this community in very practical ways. God, that's too difficult for us to do without you. So we ask that your Holy Spirit would empower us and inspire us, give us strength, give us ideas, give us practical wisdom to show love to the world around us, to those who are most vulnerable and and most in need. And we pray on an ongoing basis that we would, as we wait for you to make all things right in the world, that we would see you maybe in really big ways and maybe sometimes in small ways, bringing your kingdom over and over and over, bringing your love in Jesus' name.